0: Welcome to the Theatre of the Midnight Sun, the 21st Century Stage for Stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. And pretty much all will be performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues who in their mild manner day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. None of whom, including your host, have a day of experience on the stage, and boy does it show. So hold on tight for the next story on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. Running out of time and desperately searching for a way out of the brain, J.P. Pooler races up the softest mountain ever known in hopes of returning to our world. In part five, the conclusion of the story Left Field. Despite only having a handful of minutes left to me, in which to reach the top of Sock Mountain, I started climbing again. It was the worst. My legs felt like they were being tortured, like this kind of climbing was calling up muscles that had been loafing all their lives, doing absolutely nothing, and they were grumpy as hell about being called off the couch. Yet I slogged on, gritting my teeth, the poor kitten gripping me tighter whenever I was about to lose my balance again. The little guy got to be a pretty good indicator, in fact, sort of like a carpenter's level Whenever I tipped too far one way or the other, the pain he induced straightening me up quick, till I was almost perfectly upright again, reducing our risk of taking another tumble. Perhaps as a result, my climb up the cottony slope improved as I went. With only two minutes left to me, I picked up more speed, but the socks were getting looser, less dense than at the bottom, making for further trouble. The strange crackling noise grew louder, and I realized it was coming from somewhere near the peak. Up there too, faint snaps of light were going off like little flash bulbs. The air also had a bizarre tingle to it now, causing my arm hair to stand on end. The kitten, being a little furball himself, didn't much care for it at all. For the last 50 yards, given that it was so loose, I resorted to climbing on all fours, or rather all threes. Sweat pouring off me, my whole body aching. My breathing had gotten so labored, I began fearing what little air I had was disappearing. Then I cleared the peak and stood up, teetering wildly. With my phone dead, I couldn't tell if I'd made it according to the professor's insane time clock or not, but I had to be close. Even then, I couldn't see what it had gotten me. I patted the air with my free hand, praying another hole was somehow in the vicinity, but I couldn't find a damn thing. Above me was where it got weird, though. Twenty feet up was a bizarre swirl of colors, like when you mix paint together. It kept buzzing weirdly, and I had a feeling it was the source of the strange crackling sound I'd heard earlier. Light flashed suddenly, and a second later something fell on my head. It scared the crap out of me, and I reached up, only to pull a sock out of my hair. Then I heard noises, slurred voices, mixed like the color swirls above me, and likely coming from the same area. One sounded like Tawny, another like Farco. Professor? Professor? Tawny? Can you hear me? Another loud crack of electric sound bit the air, practically driving the little kitten nuts. Then, out of nowhere, or rather, out of that color swirl, I saw a sock start to slowly lower down toward me, followed by a second sock, and a third, and then twenty or thirty more. All of them mine, from what I could tell, and all of them knotted together like a little lifeline. I take it out, apparently. When the sock rope got within reach, I grabbed it carefully, tugged a little, and it tugged back. I wrapped it around my waist, tied it off, and got a handhold on it near my head. Seconds later, in a jerky motion, the sock rope started hauling me and the kitten up toward the color swirl. The field's color's brighter now and crackling louder, the electric charge in the air starting to get painful. The kitten was going crazy, but I held him tight despite the pain. And then with one mighty lurch, the two of us sprung upwards, straight into the swirl. And suddenly I was tumbling around and around, bumping my head and arms and legs on metal, and cursing. The air was incredibly stuffy, hot even. The metal slammed against my knees and ass, and I yelled, trying to keep the kitten close to my chest. Suddenly, I was yanked forward again, through a porthole of light, where I found myself on a hard cement floor, thin red carpeting beneath me, my feet still getting whacked by the metal. I was in my own laundry room, and the bumping, thumping menace i just passed through had been my clothes dryer, which continued battering my feet, given they were still half in the thing. I heard gasps and then... roars of laughter. (laughs) I looked up to see Jen and Farco, and the rest of the crew, even Price and Mrs. Dobbs. The floor, or rather the carpet, felt funny beneath me. And that's when I realized I was completely naked. My shirt was gone, pants, you name it. Everything except my socks.
1: (laughs) Welcome back.
0: Would you please give me something to cover myself with?
1: Uh, hold on a sec. Here. What's that? One of those little fabric softener sheets. And I mean little. (laughs) (laughs) No, wait. That's more the right size. (laughs) Oh, No, wait. Gimme that. Hey.
0: (laughs) Here, Jeep. Here's a robe for you. Thanks, Nate. I'll take the little kitty. Professor, can you shut off
1: the dryer? Sorry, JP.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: No, really. It's such a relief to have you back and know you're okay. We just didn't expect the birthday suit bit. Did you
0: take your clothes off in there? No, I didn't take them off. What goes on here
2: anyway? Well, the dryer seems solid now. Though there was a tender area there before. I put my hand through it. Probably not the metal itself. A field was probably created inside that initiated the opening. It's Gone now, though. And what about my clothes? What happened to them? Apparently, some of these doorways operate different than others, as you suggested earlier with your lobster trap analogy. With this, you can probably take clothes in with you, particularly socks, but it only allows certain articles to return. At least you are one of those articles. And your little kitten friend, too. But how did you know the hole was in there? Actually, you told me that. I told you? I didn't have a clue where it was. It was in your dream. What? Outside. The one that was running while you were stuck in the other brain.
1: JP, you had another precognitive dream, like the one you had about Jen and Nathan's date. This one showed you being pulled up from the top of Sock Mountain, with us in the laundry room and the dryer going. You showed us your own way out.
0: Wait, I I apparently dreamed this would happen in the future, and so we followed what I did in the future, even though I hadn't done it yet? But
2: I couldn't have done it if I hadn't known what would happen at that time? So, so how... Don't bother straining the gray cells trying to figure it out, Pooler. We'll just call it a paradox, and leave it at that.
1: Yes, you're out, and that's all that matters. Amen.
2: Wait, the laundry room clock says 3.30, and so you knew- We knew the hole would open at 3.26, because that's what had shown on the clock here in the dream.
1: So, Professor, you're now a believer in all this precognitive mumbo-jumbo?
2: Young lady, in this instance, I am a devout convert, and I thank you for your input. It is definitely one of the weirdest things I've ever come across, and I'll probably be writing papers on it for the next 20 years. In fact, I'll hopefully have a crew over here within the week to check this thing out from every angle. Professor, I'm proud of you, being so open-minded. Well, there's a lot out there we don't understand. Practically the whole universe, given we're on this tiny dust speck in the middle of seeming endlessness. How can we know everything?
3: Well, I don't think it's a matter of not knowing everything that all this came to pass just knowing what's right and wrong. It's the nature of certain people, and likely group actions in this area that caused this, pouring this toxic filth into our world. These bizarre events are a warning to all of us everywhere. A warning about what, Price? To be careful what we dream? That we should even rein in our subconscious somehow? Your dreams are influenced by all the inputs around you, and chiefly by your individual character. It's your behavior that attracted all this, And it was this that some unseemly force latched onto. I suspect that the denizens of that Christmas bulb you witnessed are exerting some malevolent influence, using you, a willing accomplice, as a conduit into our world. I find it odd that your most vile and immoral dream occurred while in their presence. For all we know, those beings you saw were something, well, truly unholy. Wait, you mean that girl or whatever it was? You're nuts! And you can say what it was? I have no idea, but she hardly looked menacing. In fact, you look far less dangerous than most people on this planet. A force like that would not appear as, shall we say, demonic. They would undoubtedly adopt a sweet, benevolent disguise. And I don't think you, given your history, would be able to tell. Especially being in this city. I mean, the way you and others live here, it's like a magnet, a, a breathing ground for obscene, degenerate, disgusting behavior. I mean, just look at what you have here. The rampant sodomy of the homosexual lifestyle that's an abomination to every natural law. And that's just the tip of the iceberg here. Then you have all these... Ah, you can stop right there, Price.
0: I had one eye on Nathan, whose body had begun to pucker, as if his entire soul were shrinking inside. I may not own this house, but while I'm living here, I will thank you to kindly keep such opinions to yourself. No, don't, JP. No, Nate, I've had it. Look, Price, I don't care for people who use their moral code like like a kind of whip to lash others and destroy what little chance of happiness they might have in their lives. Especially people who have no more control over how they feel inside than I have over my own dreams. And all of it just because they don't stack up to some dusty old standard of morality or rectitude or whatever the hell from a time back when women couldn't even vote or weren't even allowed to wear pants. (laughs) And this is what we hold on to and get so bent out of shape about and demonize others for. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that.
3: That's what's obscene. And toxic. Oh boy, is it. So for you and your contemptible code, anything goes? Everything's acceptable? Yes. Even pants for women. Of course not. Don't be ridiculous. We are protecting our own and our way of life. And we're just trying to live ours. All of us amen you know there are good people who are a credit to their
0: beliefs and are actual practitioners of the kind of morality and decency you're always spouting off about like my friend nate here but i'll bet the devil is pleased as punch to have you
3: around stepping in to mix things up for him and with all the media attention that comes with it mr pooler i am probably the only reason you came out of your predicament unharmed especially given your depraved ideas and that of so many others here In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if sometime soon this whole sordid city was wiped right off the map, like the last time. (laughs) Oh, uh, you'd love that, wouldn't you? Boy, for a quest
0: that's supposedly all about high and lofty morals, it sure is low-down and mean-spirited and hungry for violence. You know, I think it's pretty convenient you're both a dick and an ass, Price, because it just makes it all that easier for you to go screw yourself. (laughs) Now... Get out of my laundry room.
1: How dare you speak to Hostin like that?
0: Mrs. Dobbs, anyone with any decency can see what a low-life fraud he is. Think for a second. Think for yourself.
1: I am your landlady and I want you out by the end of the month. The nerve! Here, you've brought all this disgusting filth upon us. It's sickening!
0: But Mrs. Dobbs, I can't control what's going on out there. It's not my fault.
1: Your last day is the 30th, understand? I should have done this ages ago. I just thank God that it's through the strength of such a gracious man as Hostin Price that I finally have the courage to rid this house of you.
0: And rid me of the house I so loved. My heart doubled over, the realization of it sinking in. Me and my big principles. Even then, somewhere deep inside, some small part of me felt it was worth it. If just to give Price some blowback for all the grief he so often gave others, Nate came up to me, his eyes like a basset hound's. J.P., you're home. I'm
3: sorry. I, I never meant this to.
0: Aw, uh, Nate, don't don't sweat it. It's no big deal. I've been here six years. You know, I was getting kind of tired of it anyway.
2: But Jape, you love this place.
0: You're always I'm saying how you'd never live anywhere else. Nah, I- I've been looking around lately should be easy to find something even better, at least till that righteous earthquake comes along and lays waste to us all. I glanced at Price. He was busy trying to look wounded, and also trying not to smile, a smug look of victory on him. I looked back down at the floor, closing my eyes if just to try to push away the anger in me.
1: Boy, JP, when you uncork, you really uncork. Just the same, I'm proud of you. Ditto, I have to admit.
0: Farco didn't say a thing, just kept sucking on his teeth, apparently thinking. But after a while, the tiniest of smiles emerged at the corner of his mouth, and he shook his head, likely at the futility of it all, and how stupid I'd been for even opening my mouth. At least it wasn't a reprimand. Mrs. Dobbs meanwhile still lingered at the laundry room door, offering her apologies to Price, and refusing that he leave, as if to spite me. And as our two groups huddled in their separate corners, each murmuring disquieting things about the other, Philip and his friends barged in, shouting. Professor, you gotta come quick. What is it? The dreams, they're still running, but something strange is happening. They're beginning to overlap. We all beat it for the front walk, me still in my slippers. Some of the outdoor audience had migrated to the end of the block, now watching this new matinee, which was hanging 100 feet to the left of the first dream that continued running. The second dream was a little more ornate than my usual, set in a bedroom with golden bedposts. But the first thing I saw in it was Tawny. Beautiful, knockout Tawny. And she was doing a dance that was, to say the least, super seductive.
1: JP, I thought you said I was never in your dreams.
0: I didn't think you were. Then, in the midst of Tawny's dance, Mrs. Dobbs walked into the dream, dressed in something, um, let's just say, slinky. I nearly lost my lunch. Soon, both women were in various states of undress, much to the absolutely mortified look of the real Mrs. Dobbs, who toddled out with us to the street corner. Furious, she hauled off and started beating me with her bony little fists.
1: How could you?
0: Just as quickly, Jen pulled her off me.
1: No, look.
0: And that's when I noticed a third person in the dream. Price, who was sitting on the room's bed, soaking it all up as the women writhed around him. Their performance, if you could call it that, lasted barely a minute before Price took both of them down in a threesome, performing some of the most heinous sex acts I'd ever seen. And that was just before a group of pilots and flight attendants in tight-fitting clothes, both women and men, popped out of the woodwork, grabbing Mrs. Dobbs and Price and doing, well, I can't even say. And that was only the beginning. What came next made my dreams look absolutely PG.
2: So, JP, I heard Price has been sleeping in the duplex next to you. Yeah, Professor. It would seem the brain has not only tapped into your dreams, but those of others asleep in the general vicinity. The Professor
0: held out his bag of curry-flavored pumpkin seeds to me as if it was popcorn at the movies. He apparently planned to kick back and enjoy it all. I turned to look at Price, just like everybody else, including Mrs. Dobbs. The quote-unquote great savior seemed to be shrinking. Even more so when the army of television crews mobbed him to cover this all-new feature for their nightly news, eventually latching onto the sweating Price as he struggled to escape. In the end, Mrs. Dobbs' eyes said it all and I suspected that Price was about to find his gracious invitation to live next door rescinded forever. That night, after the others had left, with Farco promising to return in the morning with more scientific personnel and equipment, I held my own little candlelight vigil to mark the beginning of the end of my stay in the house I so loved. Nathan had offered to let me hole up at his place, Farco seconding the notion, both of them fearing the brain's appetites, but I refused to leave. The freaking thing could swallow me up for good for all I cared, but I'd be damned if I gave Mrs. Dobbs the satisfaction of moving out early. To hell with that. I promised Farco I'd report any other strange happenings, but either way I was dead set on staying foot and spending what remaining nights I had left in the house. Come hell or high water, or the latest trip to Brainville, Of course, I was still worried about the police and my impending arrest, or at least I had been till Nathan told me he'd taken care of it. Just another example of his expert work as the all-around handyman. Seemed a friend of his, an old ex, was the current flame of Supervisor Baker. And so Nate had made some calls to his old boyfriend, who told the supervisor that if they put the cuffs on me, come bedtime his old ex would no longer be putting the cuffs on him or doing anything else besides. Nathan said it should serve as a reminder to me that it pays not to burn those romantic bridges." And so the supervisor called off the hounds, the clincher being that Nate had relayed that I'd be out of the house by the end of the month anyway. Tawny, meanwhile, good soul that she is, and fearless, had decided to stay the night with me at the house, her reasoning being that the brain only seemed hungry for yours truly, and if it went for me again, she'd at least be around to alert the others. Plus, she liked the idea that if it somehow managed to dip into her dreams for inspiration, she could leave her adoring fans out front with a glorious send-off. So we unearthed a bottle of wine and a couple glasses and took it all up to the bedroom to make a few toasts. It eventually led to more sex, but this time of a more comforting sort. We even held each other afterwards, a first, and pretty soon Tawny was asleep. I, of course, still depressed about losing the house just lay there thinking about the place and all the good times I had spent within its walls. After a while, I started drifting in and out of consciousness, and as I did, another of those whacked-out dreams started, like when I saw Jen at the doctor's office. Except this time, I was in my own house, looking down on my living room, its contents quiet and dark except for the candles I'd lit earlier. Then. Amidst the glow of candlelight, I saw movement, someone or something. They walked to the rack on the wall and took down my prized baseball bat, Willie May's signature glistening in the dimness. As the person turned to leave, the candle's glow revealed the face of Price. He quietly retreated, my bat in hand, disappearing from the room. It gave me the shivers, and for a second I half expected to see his shadow moving down the hall toward my bedroom, with dark intent. But nothing happened. The living room remained empty in my dream, the hallway still vacant. But I did hear a small noise, and then a slight vibration kicked in. I shook myself too, and suddenly I was looking at the ceiling of my bedroom again, thinking maybe this time it all really was a dream. I pulled the alarm clock toward me. It was just after midnight. Tawny, wake up. I think something's wrong. I told her what I'd seen and not taking anything for granted anymore, the two of us slipped some clothes on and headed for the living room. A draft met me as we reached the hallway's end. The front door had been jimmied. The candles, meanwhile, were still burning as we walked to the wall with its empty rack.
1: It is gone. You said it was Rice, but why would he take your bat? I don't know. Wait, what's that noise?
0: The dryer. Oh God, the Christmas bulbs. I started running to the laundry room, Tawny following. We swung the door open to find the lights on, the dryer going and the old sock rope leading back into the door. Tawny, call Farco. He's at Jen's house a couple blocks away. The number's on the fridge. What about you? I'm going to follow him in.
1: Price? You can't, JP.
0: I have to. My cell phone's still in the hole, so this time I'm afraid I won't even have the luxury of communications. But I don't see any other way. I'll just have to hope for the best.
1: JP, don't. Wait, maybe we can... Go
0: call Farco.
1: But, JP, what if you can't get out this time? Things always seem to change in there, and without even a phone, the whole thing could close for good. You can't go back in. Go.
0: I'll be fine. I leaned into the revolving dryer head first, and then practically dove in. My hands lost their grip on the rope and I tumbled downward, plunging 20 feet onto Sock Mountain. Thank God the brain sucked up socks instead of dishwashers. I bounced on touchdown and somersaulted down the slope, trying to regain my balance, the smell of fabric softener and detergent drowning my senses. I came to a halt halfway down the slope, my rump planted in the laundry. I scoured the area immediately below me, then out onto the plane, searching for price, listening for any movement. Far below, 300 yards off, I could just make out the bodies of the dead who'd stumbled in, which meant the bulbs were on the mountain's other side. I got up and half crawled over the slope, leaning into the mountain as I went, searching for the bulbs and Price, if that's where he was. It's not like he had a map of the place, which was to my benefit. At least I knew what he was after, and knew the layout better than him. Given that notion, I headed down the mountain right where I was. It might be a longer walk to get to the bulbs and Price, but he wouldn't see me coming. After all, he had a bat. All I had was a crap load of socks. I slid down the mountain, finally hitting the plane of keys and tapes. I listened again, straining to hear the crunch of footsteps, but there was only silence. Hugging the slope, I tracked the curve of its base for probably 300 yards, and sure enough, minutes later, the bulbs appeared in the distance. No sign of Price, though. I gently jogged toward the bulbs, finding the one with the girl again. She was back, trying to peer from her bulb, and had apparently brought others of her kind with her, their faces distorted, crowding its roundness. There wasn't anything I could do. I just waved at them pathetically. I couldn't even tell them to back away. There was no place for them to run. And the concern in my face must have translated to the girl, for her brightened smile at seeing me had suddenly dimmed a worry spreading across her features. I heard a footstep behind me. I whirled around to see a shadowy figure approaching, a hundred feet off, only a silhouette visible. As the figure got closer, I heard Price's voice. Who's there? Just me, Mr. Pooler. Surprised? What are you doing here? Just came to get my back. Now, if you don't mind,
3: hand it over. I'd rather hold on to it a little longer. I'll return it in due time. It's not on loan.
0: He took a step to the side, as if to keep a safe distance from me, slowly regripping the bat like any ball pro.
3: I came here to do a job, to rid this from our world, stop this evil, save us.
0: Price, don't believe your own press. This isn't some serpent you're slaying. He was looking at the Christmas bulbs, with all the stars and cities, worlds and peoples inside them. The face of the girl and her friends still shone in hers. Price almost recoiled from their appearance, a ghastly look of bewilderment and distaste on his face. I took a step toward him, and he quickly held up the bat, ready to knock me out of the park.
3: Keep your distance, Puller. I don't want to hurt you. That's not what I came here for. Hey, I'm not exactly looking to get beaned, either. I said, stand back. You cannot do
0: this, Price. Things are bad for you. I know. Boy, have I been there.
3: But them, they are not it. They're not some convenient scapegoat. You defend these abominations? Abominations? Them? Isn't it obvious? They're responsible for flooding our world with these deviant images. Didn't your most disgusting dream occur while you stood here last time? A coincidence. I had that dream days earlier. Don't be blind. It's their intention to subvert us. Already they've tried to corrupt me, even in my sleep, when I'm at my most vulnerable. They've destroyed everything I ever worked for. My my name, my legacy, all the good I've done.
0: Price. Price, you're not thinking straight. I understand. I get it. All our fears and frustrations inside us looking for something, something to blame for, for what we've had taken from us, or, or fear we'll have taken from us, or fear that we'll never have. It's so easy to fool
3: ourselves. I will stop them. And if you get in my way, you will go with them. And I, I will be thanked for this and remembered forever for ridding this danger from people's lives, so we can live in peace.
0: By destroying them? Well, if you put it that way. And I rushed him. I went for his legs, hoping to take him down before he got off a swing at me or the bulbs. I hit him, both of us falling backwards, but I jammed my knee in the process. The pain terrific. price tripled it though getting just enough altitude to bring my bat around and slam it across my shoulder, the blow deflecting off my jaw. I tumbled backwards, a blast of light erupting inside my head as he connected. I started spitting out something. I couldn't taste anything anymore, my jaw numb, but I figured it had to be blood, maybe even teeth. I lay on my elbow, my skin raked up by the carpet of keys beneath me, the right knee of my pants torn through, blood soaking the shredded material. Price stood over me, holding the bat, as if daring me, but apparently even he could see I was in pretty bad shape, and I sensed some regret at what he'd done. He moved away from me, then stepped forward to strike the bulbs, starting his backswing. As pain washed over me, I made one last lunge at him, only to get broadsided by something else entirely, something much heavier. I tumbled to the ground, suddenly realizing the professor was on top of me. Farco shouted at Price to stop, but Price, focused only on his mission, brought the bat around aiming to destroy at least four bulbs with his first blow. It didn't work out that way, though. The trembling bulbs didn't shatter. Instead, as Price made contact, they swallowed him. And not just whole, but piecemeal. Parts of him sucked into one universe, parts into another, right on down the line. Price's tortured cry cut into pieces before it had hardly begun, and my poor bat disappearing into splinters with him. When it was over... The bulbs remained just as they were, still huddled together, their trembling eventually dying away. I just lay there gaping, unable to believe what I'd just seen.
2: Professor, what the hell just happened? I'm afraid Price has been recalled to the home office. Why didn't they shatter? Cooler, they may look like Christmas bulbs, but their properties are completely different. Each one of those is what's called an Einstein Rosen bridge essentially a doorway into another universe. That's why I told you not to touch them the first time. Disturbing them is not particularly healthy, as poor Mr. Price found out.
0: Farco and I never told anyone what happened to Price. In fact, nobody, not Jen or Nathan or Tawny, ever said a thing. To the public, Price simply went missing after his embarrassing run-in with the press. Farco and his scientist buddies, meanwhile, took over the house for several months as the breaches in the brain slowly disappeared, for reasons no one could determine. Of course, once I'd gone and Mrs. Dobbs had moved out, the dreams pretty much ceased anyway, and so did our daily fan club. In fact, completely embarrassed after her appearance in Price's public dream, Mrs. Dobbs quickly made plans to sell the house, moving to South Carolina with its impressive moral values, as she said. Thinking that I might actually buy the place with the money I later made off the talk show circuit, I put in a bid, but by this time the house had become so famous, its value had skyrocketed, putting it completely out of my reach. In the end, it was eventually bought by a man named Smithy, which seemed innocuous enough to Mrs. Dobbs. Little did she know, and not that he was advertising it, but Mr. Smithy was one of the biggest porn directors in the industry, and owning the house after the notoriety it had gained was a kind of coup for him. He didn't even want to live there. To him, it was simply a trophy. But get this. He eventually tracked me down and asked if I wanted to be his tenant, a move that would further cement his prestige if I occupied the house again. To sweeten the deal, he even pledged to knock down the walls, making Mrs. Dobbs' side part of my home, too. I was back in the month after, Not long after I moved back in, though, something odd happened. I heard that sensuous sigh again. In a strange way, it was like a call out of the blue from an old flame. And following the sounds, I found another entrance into the brain. This time, though, I didn't panic. Maybe because it had let me return the times before. And so, well, I've begun to visit the brain routinely now and explore its endlessness. Sometimes I spend days inside Seeing things, my God, that I could have never imagined, even in my wildest dreams. And while I'm there, so often the brain, in its own unique ways, will direct me to the Christmas bulbs. And occasionally I'll just sit there, soaking in their stunning vista, the beauty of a billion sunsets. Something even I can appreciate. And all of it feels, well, more than just happenstance. I've been allowed in for a reason. I can't explain it, but I sense that perhaps throughout all of this, that the brain had wanted me there to act as a protector, a caretaker of that realm, of the universes within it, to do things for it that it couldn't. All those sensuous sighs were maybe its way of getting my attention. A siren song, but in a good way. It's all it knew. And it got my attention, all right. I've let Nate and Tawny know about my extracurricular visits, but only them. I don't think the brain wants any undue or invasive attention. The nice thing is, the trips there have become a way to try a different side of myself, out there on the other side of nowhere, in what is, for me, a whole new ballgame, where I often learn lessons in insignificance, and significance too, that are vast and poignant. And it's made me feel... (laughs) responsible. Yeah, me, responsible. And all it took was the brain, hundreds of universes, and several brushes with death. Now, what the brain saw in me, I cannot imagine. But it saw something, and proved to be right, I suppose. Maybe it wants me there in case of dangers that are a whole lot more potent than price. I don't know what those might be, or what I'll have to do. But we'll see when the time comes.
2: Nice Happiness, just to find me.
1: Happiness, all the days I didn't care. But now finally, come out there. Right down the
3: track, we.
0: And so concludes the story, Left Field. The cast for this podcast included Tipperary Cork as Jen. Bruno de Montepulciano as Professor Farco, Claire Splann as Tawny, Michael Berenger as Nathan, Phaedra Caruso as Mrs. Dobbs, and I, Michael McGee, in a performance that would have acting legends like Laurence Olivier and Marlon Brando facepalming from Here to Eternity play the role of JP. The music heard in this episode came from several wonderful artists, including Clouseau, Kaimoku, two lovely piano pieces by Eric Frampton and musical artist AJT, Stanley Lieber, Serge Pavkin, Lee Mattaford, Louis Gentila, and the Blue Vagrants, who perform the tune you're listening to currently, called Ragweed. The music tracks used here were courtesy of websites such as the Podshow Podsafe Network, GarageBand, and Pixabay. Most of the sound effects were courtesy of SoundSnap and Pixabay. A full rundown of the musicians or song and composition names can be found on the music page of the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. So that's it for this episode and this season of Theater of the Midnight Sun. Hopefully we can create a second season of shows sometime in the future, but all that depends on listenership and the popularity of these programs. So please let your friends know about us and please subscribe or follow us. With any luck, we can run some fundraisers and set up Patreon and coffee pages if there's enough interest for a second season. Because these programs do take a whole lot of time and work and we are a very indie outfit. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain, and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians. It's just us, the theater of the midnight sun. Shrugging off the past
2: It's all over now but with the tattoo oh.
1: Justify
2: me, my
3: queen. Deva, noちi hodo, see you later.